turn in your Bibles uh, to uh, Psalm 34. We're going to revisit a part of that. I'll be reading verses 15 to 18, and then focusing primarily on verse 17 for the portion of the sermon. Psalmist writes, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, this is a remarkable text when we, when we read it. And parts of it uh, are so encouraging, and other parts just seem to be a uh, uh, clash with our own experience. And yet we know that uh, even that dissonance between our experience and what this text says can be cleared up as we understand you and surrender to you more fully. That's hard for us to do, Father. But one of the places that you have given us in which we can experience that wrestling with you until we have settled our soul on your good purposes is in prayer. And so as we visit this topic for a few weeks, I pray that you would help us to to see what a privilege and gift it is. And by your grace to more fully engage in it on a regular daily basis. For we ask these things in Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen. Someone once said, and I quote, The one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks our wisdom, but trembles, trembles when we pray. I like that. I like the idea of the devil trembling when I pray. I'd like to see it. I'd like to see him shake and quake in his boots. And it's also true that we know that prayer is given to us by God as as an essential element, a central part of our spiritual lives. If we're going to grow to maturity, if we're going to enjoy the um, satisfaction of, of Christ and all that he is for us, these things are embraced by faith and by prayer. Because it is there that we, we go to God and we lay before him the needs of our souls. And it's not easy to maintain. You and I both know in our own experience, prayer is one of the hardest things to maintain. I've always been struck by the, the wide range of titles. Sort of lay out the, uh, um, the experience we have with, with prayer. Here are some titles. Just the titles alone. Getting things from God. Let's pray together. 
I like this one. Prayer without pretending. Saying better prayers. The Holy Spirit, our teacher in prayer. Teach yourself to pray. I don't know how that works, but... Pray with your eyes open. Praying backwards. The struggle of prayer, long wandering prayer. Prayer that shapes the future. No easy road. The Prayer Life or With Christ in the School of Prayer by Andrew Murray. You begin to look at the titles and the wide breadth of books on prayer. And they, they highlight the, the, the frustration, the desire, the tension, the sense of failure, the hope. All of these things that you and I experience when we try and pray. And I suspect that that's why people keep writing them and you and I keep buying them and reading them. Because we want a vital prayer life. Scripture tells us that it's, it's a blessing to us. And we see the, the lives of those who have been men and women of prayer in the scriptures and in church history and we say, I want that. I want that. And yet when we get down to it, it is so hard for us. Well, this morning and the next couple of Sundays between now and the beginning of Advent, I'd like to just look at this topic of prayer. And this morning, all I really want to do is take a look at this one verse, verse 17, in which the psalmist lays out a very simple definition of prayer as simply coming to God with our desires. I think it's just a good place to start, a good, basic, fundamental understanding of what prayer is. So we can kind of unburden it with our sense of failure and experience and and our frustrations and all the times we don't think we've been answered and all that other stuff and just get right back down to the core of it. So let's begin. The first thing the psalmist says is that we who are made righteous in Christ come to God in prayer. Now, it's a natural thing that we would. It wasn't natural before we became Christian, but it's natural now. And it's natural because you and I have been made his children. This this gracious working of God in Christ, that Christ bore our sins, and that by faith we believed in that, that itself a gift, and have been redeemed and justified in the sight of God, and declared now to be in his own, to be his own and to be in right relationship with him, gives us not only the extraordinary privilege of coming to him in prayer, but actually places the desire in our hearts to do so. We want that relationship. As buried as it sometimes gets in the, in the, in the busyness of everyday life, it is there. Because he has placed it there by placing us in relationship. It's like being in relationship with a person. You want to live with someone that you don't want to talk to. No. You don't want to live with someone you're not going to talk to or who's not going to talk to you. The natural thing about a relationship is that there's give and take. There's communication. There's an ever-increasing depth of soul and sharing. And prayer begins with the acknowledgement that God has given us that 
By redeeming us. Because there's no longer the enmity. He's no longer out there. But literally is so close. He's closer than the hair on our head and has given us his own spirit to enable us to pray. And that's where we have to begin. At the same time, we've been made righteous. We look at what we do every day, don't we? And we know we're still sinners. And that creates for this this, this, this tension. And you all know, we tend to look at our sin more fully, or maybe for longer periods of time, or greater concentration, however you want to phrase it. We look at that more deeply than we look at the righteousness which is ours. And that causes some real problems. It can make us despondent. It can make us doubt God's God's willingness to, to hear us or to answer us in prayer. But you know, the scriptures teach us that God is he is merciful and he's gentle with a broken flax and smoking wick, right? He, he doesn't come along and break them off and snuff them out. And the reason is found in Romans chapter 7. Remember when we studied that chapter, we, we realized that one of the things that Paul says there is incredibly important. That though we repeatedly fall into sin, at the core of our beings, it is not our desire to do so. Because the new creature that we are in Christ does not want to sin. And so Paul actually says it grieves us because we're doing what the very thing we don't want to do. And so there's a separation between this part of us that is still affected by sin and the inner core, the true essence of our existence as Christians, which does not. And that's a that's a good thing to remember. Because we blur that distinction generally when we fall into sin. And when we fall into sin, when we do something wrong, even if it's just acting like an idiot and wishing we hadn't, the first thing we do is we paint our whole beings, our whole selves with the same brush. And we don't see that there's something about that action that is really not reflective of the true person that we are in Jesus Christ. And there is a blessing in being able to make that distinction. Now, you don't want to go as far as the Nazarenes and believe that you know, that distinction is so complete that you never sin. And that it doesn't make any difference what you do. Uh, that's not true at all. But psychologically, spiritually, it is good to see that there is a, a cleavage in our, in our beings that is made between that which we are in Jesus Christ and that part of us that is still weak and affected and sometimes overcome by sin. And when we are swept up by sin... We must be awfully careful not to fall into self-pity, but instead to just cry out to God to bring us to our senses and to do everything we can to first recover ourselves, as it were, to step back from the sin 
And to then turn to God and ask for forgiveness and to embrace it, to be glad that he, he lavishes it on us so quickly, so immediately, so completely. Because he wants that. He wants us restored. He wants that sense of, okay, a fresh start now. I don't have to wait an hour. I don't have to wait a week or a day or a month. I start fresh the moment I confess it. Because he is faithful to forgive us for his son's sake. That's when freedom in prayer really becomes available to us when we're not laboring under now the taint the taint of life that often clings so closely to us and it's that taint I think that sense that we're never really clear in the righteousness that is ours. We're, it's really hard to get that freedom clear in our minds. That means that, well, I think a lot of the a lot of the Puritans especially said, you know what? For prayer to work when you're in that kind of circumstance means you've got to warm yourself up. I've always found it interesting to look at uh, Isaac Newton's Law of Inertia. I'm going to quote it because I I don't haven't memorized it. It says an object at rest tends to stay at rest, and an object in motion tends to stay in motion in a straight line at a constant speed unless it is acted upon by an unbalanced force. See, when I was in high school, all you had to get was the first part. You didn't have to worry about straight lines, constant speeds, outside force. But the simple fact of the matter is, is that, that spiritually and emotionally and psychologically we can all, always, often find ourselves in that place where it is hard, if you excuse the expression, to get up for prayer, to get excited about praying, to warm to the idea. Do you know the saints for hundreds, thousands of years have recognized that and struggled with that very thing and, and some of them come to some pretty interesting things. George Mueller said that he would preach to himself. Preach to himself. He'd sing hymns. Martin Luther. Martin Luther said that he'd have a warming up prayer which basically meant a little short one. It was kind of like an appetizer. You know, we had appetizers yesterday before lunch. What's that? That's to get your digestive juices going. It's a whole lot better than, than chewing gum. You know, you just, you get moving. Okay? How do you start a fire? Do you start a fire with a big log? No, you start it with paper or tinder, you know, and small pieces of wood. And then you build a larger and larger fire. Well, the same is true when it comes to, to inflaming, if you will, our prayer lives. Sometimes we really need an outside force exerted on our sort of stay in a straight line, inertia of not wanting to pray or you know do anything else before God. And to get, get that direction changed. In a good direction, in a godly direction. 
So don't be surprised if you need to be warmed up in prayer. You probably do. The thing to, thing to do is to find out in terms of your own personality and the time that you have available and the, the resources that are in your home, what, what can you do? My grandfather used to sit in his chair, he'd read the Bible, then turn on John DeBrine. And then I'd catch him praying. The old man was 80-some years old. And then he'd go out in the field at 6 o'clock in the morning to pick corn. I've been up all night, that's the only reason I saw him at that hour of the morning. He did that every day. I don't know what you need to do. Maybe you need to sing hymns. Maybe you need to, you know, pick up a devotional book. Maybe you need to pick up a good prayer book. But whatever it is, it is worth doing. Because like many things, there's sometimes we just need that little start, that help to get off the dime and begin to to warm our souls towards God and not just sort of plunge into prayer and realize about the third sentence in, this isn't any fun at all. See, if you get it going, by the time you get to your third or fourth sentence, you're glad. You're on a roll. Well, the next thing the psalmist tells us is that God hears us when when we pray. He says, the righteous cry out, and the Lord hears. Well, for prayer to flow, we we really do have to have a a true and, and encouraging, inviting, if you will, picture of who God is. Some years ago, I picked up a, a, a Life magazine that had a, uh, the cover story was uh, Who is God? And it was filled with these interviews and pictures of people who uh, had, uh, I cannot tell you, the most disparate views of who God is that I have ever seen in my life. Uh, it's, if you ever come across the copy, it is, it is worth looking at. At the same time, it's an incredibly sad commentary on just how far away from a clear, true, biblical understanding of God these people had. It's just like MTD. You know, they, they get the kind of candy coating on the outside, but they don't get the vital kernel on the inside that is so essential to really see who God is. Now, our God gives us truth. He is truth. Our God is the one who has created literally everything that exists, including us, for his own pleasure. He guides every single action of our lives, including our thoughts, our sins, and everything else, to an appointed end, which is to bring him glory in his kingdom through the working of Jesus Christ. This God is omniscient. He knows your every desire, your every thought. He knows things about you you don't know. I've never even sifted up to your consciousness. He knows it about you. This is the one who is omnipotent, for whom nothing is too difficult. Nothing is impossible for him. This is the God who is merciful and gracious, who waits. He waits for his people to come and ask for something so that he can lavish the answers on them. This is the same God who has promised to hear and to give. 
So when we come to prayer, it is really crucial that it is this God with these characteristics and all the others that the scriptures speak of as the one that we have in mind. He is infinitely good and wise and powerful. And he does delight to do good to us. Nancy Spiegelberg uh, sums it up in a real short poem. She says, Lord, I crawled across the barrenness to you with my empty cup, uncertain in asking any small drop of refreshment. Okay? She's coming to God with this tiny little cup. She's a little uncertain of whether or not she can ask him for something. She said, if only I'd known you better, I'd have come running with a bucket. I mean, that's the contrast, right? That is the contrast. When we doubt, when we're uncertain, when we may not, when we may not have come to God for forgiveness in our still in our sin, sin and our guilt, so to speak, we don't come to God with a clear conscience. We don't come to God with a bucket. We're afraid to go ask, and if we do ask, it's for a pittance. Let the scriptures say that the righteous cry out and the Lord hears. So it is that we ought to come with buckets. And better yet, 50-gallon you know, drums. Bring a Johnson swimming pool. He's, he's got more gifts, more blessings to give than we have capacity to carry away. Jesus gives a very powerful picture of this in, in, in uh, Luke chapter 15, which is why I had us read the prodigal. Uh, it, is, uh, it is really, really an important passage, I think, for those who, who find themselves discouraged at some point. When you begin to look about the character of the father when he sees his son returning, you have to understand that this is the way God looks at us. Listen to this. Because his father saw him okay, from a distance. His father saw him from a distance. He was longing for him. He had been looking for him. He says, and he had compassion on him. And immediately his heart goes out to his son. There's, there's forgiveness before his son even asks for it. He says, he ran. The father ran at his old age. He couldn't contain himself because he was so eager to receive his son. And he kissed him, restoring that that communion, that, that deep abiding relationship between father and child. And then he says, bring the best robe, a ring and shoes. He's honoring him showering him, lifting him up, removing the the, the filthy rags that he had on. And he's killing the fatted calf, giving the best that he has. And then he cries out to all, he says, let us eat and be merry. This joyfulness, this, this communion, this thankfulness, this rejoicing over the restoration of his son to himself. Now this is the God to whom we come with our desires and our prayers and our, and our concerns and our needs. His, his character doesn't change. 
The character that we see reflected here towards the prodigal is the very character that Jesus always reflects towards us. Always. This is how he thinks and feels about you and me. So when you're concerned that God, God may not be thinking so highly of you, when doubt and unbelief has clouded your mind to that degree, turn to this passage. Remind yourself again of how he really thinks of you and what his response to you actually is. The last thing the psalmist says is that when we cry to God and bring our deepest and most heartfelt desires to him, we believe he can deliver. Right? We believe he's going to answer us. The psalmist says, the righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Prayer is an expression of our desires, our, our, our hopes, our dreams, our concerns. But it's not alone. Because it's bound up very intricately with two other things. The first is ourselves. When we come crying to God with some need, we come because we recognize that it's absolutely impossible for us or for any other human being to fulfill that need. Right? That's the reason we're asking Him. I don't ask Him to, you know, make me a sandwich. I go to the refrigerator and I make it myself. But if I'm longing for healing, if I'm looking for for restoration of my soul's need, I can't do that. I come to Him because I recognize how impotent and impossible it is for me to do that. Secondly, I come to Him because I know that He alone can, that He's omnipotent, that He's all-wise, that the things that He determines to do are the exact things that need to be done. that's why I can bring my desires whether it's some deliverance from a cross whether it's the unloading of guilt whether it's concern about something that threatens us whether it's some blessing for body or soul it doesn't matter we bring these things to this God whom we really believe can and will meet that need with his best Wisdom guiding it. In fact, Scripture, Scripture is really replete. You can read Scripture from one end to the other, and there are so many examples of people who are just, they're just free in throwing out their concerns before God, just laying it right out there. 1 Samuel 15, Hannah answers, and she says, I've poured out my soul before the Lord. The psalmist says, To thee, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And again, the psalmist says, They cried out and they were were delivered. Psalm 42, As the deer pants, pants 
for the water brook, so my soul pants for thee. First Chronicles tells us that all Judah had sworn with their whole heart and had sought him earnestly, and he let them find him. I mean, you can go on and on and on, and throughout Scripture you will see men and women of God who have no compunction at all. Their desires, man, they, they just come as honestly and rawly as they need to. This is it, God. I'm not trying to cover it up. I'm not trying to make it pretty. I'm not trying to put it in the right words. I can't put it in the right words. Today, I don't have words. All I've got is a groaning gut. A yearning that I can't even verbalize or articulate. But my hope is that you know. You know what those things are and you hear. And you'll deliver me. Because a hope isn't on the power of our prayer or on the, the way we've said it. It's, it's on the promises that, that are just so many of them, thousands of them, contained in the pages of this book. The promises of God to us as people, that's, that is where the foundation of our, of our hope for answer prayer lays. At the same time, there's a, there's a great ambiguity there. There's a, you know, the, the great Indian leader, um, you know, Crowfoot, I think. Yeah, Crowfoot. He was the chief of the Blackfoot Indians. And, uh, and a lot of their land was in, uh, was in uh, Western Canada. And the, uh, the Trans-Canadian Railway wanted to put the railroad through their land. And uh, they had to go through Crowfoot. Crowfoot, and he basically gave them permission to use the land between Medicine Hat and Calvary, Calgary. And um, so they were very grateful. And to show their gratefulness, they, they gave uh, Crowfoot a, uh, a lifetime pass on the railway. I'm sure that was just cat's meow to him. Couldn't have gotten any better. Well, he took that that lifetime pass and he put it in a little leather pouch and he wore it around the neck the rest of his life and yet there's not a single instance that he ever actually used it this is the way we often treat the promises of God isn't it we keep them in this book in a verse pack in our pocket maybe one you know sifts through from one that we've memorized before got one pinned to our, our mirror, our refrigerator. But for some reason, whether because we're weak in faith, or for whatever reason, they just seem so faint and distant and unable to meet the need of the moment. In fact, they can and do but we don't see it. There's a fellow by the name of uh, Spursto who uh, drew this analogy. He says, A believer looking at a promise is like a man who goes out on a clear night who, when he first looks up, sees a few faint stars. But later he goes out again and he sees there are a lot more stars and it's brighter than it was at first. Later, he goes out yet again and he looks up and the heavens literally are ablaze with millions and billions of stars. 
a countless multitude. When you and I, in a moment of need, first turn our thoughts to God's promises, the tendency is to kind of settle on maybe one or two. But if we keep looking at that one or two, God will bring to mind dozens more. And the longer we keep looking, the more promises God will reveal to us. So that when we, when we encounter difficulties, it's not that we ever want to kind of hang everything on one promise. But we use whatever that promise is to remind ourselves of the extraordinary length and breadth and height and depth of God's love for us in Christ that is just filled with promises. And that's why we we pray. That's why we believe God will answer. Because we have so many. There's a fellow by the name of Robert Morgan who uh, writes about an experience that he had in a crumbling hotel in, in Porto Alegre, Brazil. He said he'd gone up to his tiny room in this creaking, creaking elevator, and he got up to his window and he looked out, and all he could see were slums, all spread out below him. He said suddenly he got this really uneasy feeling, and he said that night he, he began to pray before bed. This is his prayer. Lord, please save me from any danger of fire. You can see I'm at the top of a dilapidated hotel, which is nothing but a fire trap. There isn't a fire station near, and I can't see any fire escapes on the building. Lord, you know this building would go up in flames in a second. And at this very moment, it's probably full of people falling asleep with Marlboros in their mouths. Great prayer. He said by the time he finished praying, he was such a nervous wreck, he couldn't sleep. (laughs) Our prayer is meant really to do something very different. In many respects, we, 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 we go just as honestly and rawly as it is into God's presence with our concerns and our needs, and we lay it out there. But we do so with the certainty of his promises. And of his character. Now this idea that you know God is going to you know, relieve us of every of every pain and concern and fear that we have is simply unfounded biblically, because there are many times that He wants us to live through those things with Him, and there are times when He wants us to die in those things with Him. But it's always with him. It's always with him. And that ultimately is the only thing that matters. Prayer is the the bringing of our soul's needs, desires, fears, concerns to a God who loves and answers. And in that, the most important thing, brethren... It's not that he gives us what he want, what we want, but that we find him afresh, anew for us. Let's pray.
Our Father, we are uh, in such deep need of prayer that that goes after you in in a more forceful and real and honest way. Oh God, help us to be honest in prayer. Help us to be honest about ourselves. And not to be afraid. And not to cast, not, not concerned about throwing away things that, that have prevented us from drawing near to you. Or prevented us from having a clear mind about who you are. What you'll do. Help us, we pray, Lord, because we want a deep, rich relationship with you in prayer. And we really don't know how to get it very well. But your Spirit will teach us. He'll enable us. He'll guide us. Do that for us, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.